Hey, this is El Goro from the Talk Without Rhythm podcast, and you are listening to The Faculty of Horror. Good choice. Welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm one of your hosts, Alex West, with Andrea Subasati. And we're back. It's the lovely month of March. It's still freezing, but you know what? I'm so sick of winter. All I want to do is get into a car and go to a cottage or a cabin, if you will. Maybe in the woods. Maybe get away from my fellow humans. Who knows? Maybe, Andrea, would you like to come with me? Only if there's going to be Kandarian demons. We're gonna get you. We're gonna get you. Not another peep. Time to go to sleep. So if you haven't figured it out already, we are going to be talking about the 1981 classic, The Evil Dead, and the 1987 also classic, Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn. I have seen the dark shadows moving in the woods, and I have no doubt that whatever I have resurrected through this book is sure to come calling for me. No, it was the woods themselves. They're alive, Ashley. your girlfriend you take care of her So not only is this the time of year that I start thinking about going on vacation, feeling a bit more normal and less, you know, hold in all the time because of the cold, we also got a really lovely shout out from the AV Club website and the writer actually mentioned Evil Dead in the article and that it makes you kind of want to rewatch Evil Dead and then I went, holy shit, I really do want to rewatch Evil Dead. 
So here we are. And in doing research for this episode, I actually realized that there isn't a whole lot of analytical work done on The Evil Dead or Evil Dead 2. I found quite a bit on the recent remake. You know, it was highly anticipated, as I'm sure you remember, and a lot of people were surprised at some of the stylistic decisions and wanted to discuss them. So we are going to mention the remake, we are going to mention Army of Darkness, but we're going to focus primarily on the first two films in the series today. And my husband, Bruce Campbell. Give me some sugar, baby. So the interesting thing about these two movies is they're almost the same movie, but they're also totally not the same movie. So the basic plot of the first film, The Evil Dead, is a group of you know young college students go up to a cabin in the woods. They settle in, and almost immediately, the door to the cellar flies open all on its own. The two guys go downstairs to retrieve what we soon learn is the Necronomicon. They also pull up some tapes, begin to play the tapes, and all of a sudden unleash a demon force. The demons start possessing the group of youngsters one at a time, taking the women first, followed by the kind of douchey guy, leaving our man, Bruce Campbell, a.k.a. Ash, left to fight everything by himself. He staggers out into the dawn, only to be seemingly struck down by another demonic force, and there the film ends. Now, this is Sam Raimi's first feature film. He had made a short just prior to that to help fund the film. But this film was really his baby. And if you see any special features or any commentary talking about it, anyone who worked on this film will tell you that Sam Raimi was very much in control. He had his vision. He had everything plotted out. And he was actually really punishing to work for. The circumstances of this shoot were very punishing. They were freezing cold out in this cabin. They weren't unionized actors with nice buffet catering and stuff. And they were working on a very small budget. And so far as all the special effects are practical and really wildly inventive and creative, for the most part, they were latex paint and the most crude conditions to make this incredibly imaginative movie. I think The Evil Dead is a film that really contextualized a lot of horror tropes. I was reading, actually, in prepping for this episode, that a lot of people you know, thought it was a satire initially, and it's kind of labeled as a horror comedy because it's all the tropes. But you have to keep in mind that this was made and released in 1981, so we hadn't really hit the peak of the horror franchise. It was really just in its infancy. So this kind of story, which combined this kind of rural American folklore kind of aspect with brutal gore was something so new and it would take another six years until the sequel came out and we actually saw them make a parody and I think the parody is all the more important in the second film not only because I think tonally they pull it off so perfectly but because 
audiences were just, I think, on the cusp of getting tired of, like, Freddie and Jason and Michael Myers. There was a kind of fevered exhaustion of these films that were, in a lot of ways, taking themselves really seriously. So to have a really well-made, considered, thoughtful film that is also very tongue-in-cheek was a real release for an audience. And I think it is no surprise that it's lasted the way it has, and it still holds up in a really incredible way. Now, the second film we're going to talk about, we're going to introduce it now because these films are just so similar that when we get into the theories behind it, we're pretty much going to be discussing both films. Now, I really get the sense that Evil Dead 2 kind of occupies a strange space between a remake and a sequel because we've got the same cabin. Evil Dead 2 begins with a kind of synopsis of what took about an hour to learn in the first film. Legend has it that it was written by the Dark Ones, Necronomicon Ex Mortis, roughly translated, Book of the Dead. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. It was written long ago. The seas ran red with blood. It was this blood that was used to ink the book. In the year 1300 AD, the book disappeared. And then we kind of dive right in with Ash arriving with his girlfriend. But there's also a subplot of Annie and Ed. Now, Annie is the daughter of the doctor who owns the cabin and is doing all this research on the Necronomicon. And she is actually doing research as well. And she and Ed have come across the final pages of the Necronomicon to open the door to another world. And on their journey to the cabin, they encounter Jake and Bobby Joe, who are a couple of hillbillies, and they all venture to the cabin together. And by the time they get there, Ash has already dispensed with his girlfriend, Linda. He's covered in blood. There's blood everywhere. And so Annie and the others have no choice but to think that Ash has killed them all, and they lock him up. So the film goes on much as the first one did with Kandarian demons picking everybody off one by one. But whereas the first movie was kind of melodramatic, and it was sort of unintentionally funny. (laughs) Now, I watched the special features of both films. In fact, we're recording out of my living room right now, and just kind of looking around, you can see that my roommate and I are big fans of Evil Dead. We've got a framed poster of Evil Dead the Musical, a special edition box set that looks like the Necronomicon. I've got an Evil Dead 2 Ash up there, and we've got special editions of both movies, so I definitely watched every commentary and special feature. And my impression was really that this was Sam Raimi wanting to give it another stab with a higher budget, better supplies, better conditions for shooting, and the commentary by the actors really reflect that, that they had a lot of fun this time. He improved upon a lot of things that he felt like he didn't really do right in the first one. Most notably, he omitted a very controversial scene, which is the tree rape.
is it in the second movie? Because I couldn't remember because it's been a while since I'd seen them. And Bobby Joe kind of gets tree raped. Well, she definitely gets her clothes ripped off and dragged through the woods, but it is nowhere near as graphic as it is in the first yeah. one. I saw in the special features that the actress who played Linda in the first film went to the premiere sitting next to her mother and had no idea how graphic that tree rape was going to be because that final stab <laughs> actually happened in yeah. post-production. So she was pretty shocked at that. So I guess you could say it's more of a tree assault in Dead by Dawn. You could say that. I mean, obviously, there are huge implications with the decision to put a tree rape in the film, but my read on it, to be honest, and I'm pretty sensitive to gender politics and stuff, but from what I know about Sam Raimi, I really get the sense that he put it in there because he had an idea of how he could do it and wanted to see it done more so than wanted to punish that particular character in that particular way because the way he did it practically with the vines wrapping around her wrists and stuff it looks fantastic even today I think that's fair and I know Raimi has come forward himself and said he kind of regrets doing that scene because it wasn't what he intended and he doesn't deny you know the connotations that it's taken on especially in the present day mediatized rape culture which is a very real thing and for me what I thought was interesting is I know a lot of people actually had a lot of problems with the remake uh, Evil Dead 2013 and so rewatching the original 1981 version I feel like I always forget how shocking that scene is because it is very like that she just got raped by a tree and there was like a snapping sound when it shot into her. It's very strange. It's a very strange moment. And I actually liked a lot of stuff about the remake and I know that the director, Fade Alvarez, felt pressure, especially from Robert Tapert, who was also a producer on the original films, that that scene should be included in the remake. And, you know, Alvarez has kind of said, oh, I don't know, I don't know. But watching the 2013 remake, I really, it's hard to say, but for lack of a better word, appreciated that character who eventually becomes the final girl in that film. When she gets raped, she's in pain. She's in agony. She is screaming and crying. And it's a very, like... I don't know, but as a woman, it's a very kind of powerful thing to see on screen and a really scary thing to see on the screen. And in the 1981 version, it like the trees attack her, start raping her, and then her screen kind of turns into like a moaning, like she's enjoying it. For a film that works so well on so many levels, it's like your meter is just pinging because tonally, it's such a strange moment and it doesn't feel like it's in keeping within the world of that film. So that's one of the wrongs that Sam Raimi tried to correct in Evil Dead 2. And then when it comes to the 2013 remake, now when I first saw it, I hated it. Uh, I loathed it, and I rewatched it today, and I discovered today that maybe I didn't give it a fair shake. It has a lot of problems, and I realized upon the rewatch today that everything that I didn't like about it happened in the first half hour. So the first half hour, I'm already cringing, and it really affected my enjoyment of the rest of it. And I was cringing in the first half hour because the melodrama and the over-explaining and really unnecessary backstory takes center stage, and it really takes me out of the Evil Dead universe, which in the first two films, they're just going to have some fun, you know? Do you really need the subplot of the addiction and the you weren't there when mom died and blah, blah, blah? You know, on our final days at the hospital, mom sometimes thought I was you. 
She even called me David for a whole day once, and I played along, because... Mia, look, I wanted to be there. Okay, I did. But by the time Mom got bad, I had just gotten the job at the garage in Chicago. I don't know, I had, I had a hard time finding the right moment to come back. And then it was too late, so... Maybe you were lucky not to see her the way that I did. But I will say this about the rape scene in the remake. I thought it was really interesting that they changed it fundamentally in that Mia is grabbed by the trees and she's kind of held there. And then we see the ghost of a girl who was possessed by the Kandarian demons prior. And this demon, her mouth drops open and branches come out of her mouth. And those are the branches that climb up Mia and penetrate her. So there's almost an implication that they've feminized the rape scene. There's definitely an implication of cunnilingus. Like it was a girl-on-girl rape scene, as if that's going to make it kind of somehow okay. And then carrying on into the rest of the film, there's other implications of girl-on-girl infection you know at one point when Mia attacks the blonde girl it's trying to make out with her so I thought that was really interesting now the thing about Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 is that they're a really kind of classic story they're a very simple story but it's all the things that Sam Raimi and his crew and his actors added into it like with their own personalities and own energy and own creativity that really build it up to this cult mythic status within the horror genre. Now, because we are the faculty of horror, we thought it would be a really important thing to actually start pulling some theoretical devices to frame this film. So the first thing I really wanted to talk about was the Jungian theory of the underworld. Carl Jung was a psychotherapist, and his school that he really developed was about a quest for human wholeness, and that folklore and mythology are a part of the human psyche, and that's because we are repeating patterns constantly. So the idea of having these stories varying slightly, we're still learning things, and through watching them and reading them and engaging with them, we learn more about ourselves. And the other really important part of his theorem is that he really believed that humanity could fix themselves from within, that it was within us to fix ourselves, to really investigate our own issues and problems. It didn't have to come from an outside source. And I feel like the Evil Dead films really develop Ash in such a way. Because when you watch The Evil Dead, Ash kind of starts out as a very timid male, especially next to his counterpart, Scott, who is considerably more brave. And then Ash emerges as the hero. Whereas in Evil Dead 2, he kind of starts out that way. Yeah. It's just him and Linda, and he's already kind of flirtatious, kind of funny, kind of hyper-masculine. What do you say we have some champagne, huh, baby? You know? <laughs> sure. <laughs> After all, I'm a man and you're a woman. Uh, At least last time I checked. <laughs> okay. So we really see Ash developing his inner hero throughout the two films. That's one of the things I really like about these films is you can see the emergence of Bruce Campbell's persona. I think so much so that Bruce Campbell and Ash are forever going to be inextricably linked together. 
And I think the sense I get from him is that he's actually quite proud of that. And he's signed up and he's not fighting it. He really brought a lot of himself to that part. And a lot of people really love it. That anti-hero quality is so much fun to watch. And there's so much charm that he brings. Not to mention that chin. How did I get the scar on my chin? Does anybody have a book? <laughs> if chins could kill, they don't have that. With you have that. I'm just. I'm going to look at the first page. The first word of the first page. There is an L-shaped scar on the left side of my chin. Okay. Uh, thank you. I also see a bit of hero development in the remake. Once again, upon the rewatch, I see that in Mia. She starts out as the victim, and then she becomes the antagonist. She's the first to be possessed. And then in the end, she's on her own and becomes sort of the anti-final girl, which was really interesting. One of the most important theorems that Young really focused on was actually based off of Greek mythology and the theory of the underworld. Obviously, you have a lot of characters go down to the underworld, usually to like retrieve a woman or like go fight someone or go do something and then like come back and then the world will be okay. There are two main schools within this. So there is Nikia, and that is the night sea journey, and that's the journey to hell. And that, you know, we see very prominently in the Odyssey with Odysseus and Penelope, who has to kind of wait for him on the other side. And then you have Catabasis, and it is a journey to the lower world that the hero can only emerge from when he emerges in light. And you see a story like that in the myth of Orpheus and Euripides. Now, not only does this take on a very literal meaning within these films, because the demons and the terror and everything seems to kind of stop at least a bit when the sun comes up. By journeying, by letting yourself go and go deeper into this you know, realm where we are in a more primal or primordial state, we will forever be learning about ourselves in a much deeper way once we let go of trying to set a boundary. So obviously we see that very clearly in the use of light in these films. As the sun comes up, the terror seems to dissipate, the demons seem to go away, and everyone seems to kind of go back to normal, at least until the sun goes down again. So the need and the quest, I think, is very important. And in these fabled myths, the hero just has to go do it once, and he does his duty, and he comes out on the other side, and everything's fine. But the sense we get with Ash is that he is doomed to repeat this again and again and again, like the most horrific Groundhog Day you can imagine. I think that can kind of go into the idea that he is such an anti-hero that he never learns all these lessons that are supposed to come with being a hero and, and passing these tests. It's like he always kind of cheats and gets around them, especially when you get into a film like Army of Darkness, where that's made super clear. But the idea that this character is kind of on this perpetual loop I think is a really interesting thing. Obviously, we know the financial reasons behind the having to do the little mini prologue in the second film, which was that I think it was the distributors of the first film still held the rights and they didn't want to give them up. So Raimi and crew had to go shoot something else to fill in the audience. But if you know you look at it thematically, there is this kind of amazing thing of like this man who is forever returning to this cottage where everyone he loves dies. And all I could think of 
when I was watching these, especially as both of these films neared their completion, and in my spare time I've been watching a lot of Law and Order, was like, what would happen if like cops just showed up and there's one guy left alone, alive, and everyone else has been like cut apart? That's right. He definitely does have a hard time at first with the idea of having to dismember and bury his friends. Mm-hmm. Very Shelley. She's a she's a friend of ours. Ah, she's, she's dead. Whereas in Evil Dead 2, he cuts to it a bit faster, and he's the one who has to kind of inform the others that I know what to do, and I know it seems fucked up, but we've got to kill them. Let's just say he doesn't lose his head over it in the second one. hey Now, my first exposure to Carl Jung was when I was doing my undergrad in sociology. I also took quite a bit of psychology. I wanted to minor in it, but I forget why I didn't. Something happened. You've clearly repressed that. It might have been something as simple as not taking OAC biology, and I wasn't, you know, I didn't have the sciences background to get into it, but what I really liked about Jung was he came out of Freud, and Freud's psychoanalysis is obviously very problematic in a lot of ways, but what Jung took from Freud was the idea of the subconscious and the repressed subconscious. And among the things that Jung had to say about the subconscious is he talked about how human beings categorize information, how we organize information, and how human beings are unique in that they recognize patterns and that they organize information in such a way, which led him to talk about archetypes. Now, archetypes in the Jungian sense refer to representations formed by history, culture, and personal context. And archetypes are also used in literature. We're talking about the hero, there's the maiden, there's the hag, there's all these roles that we always see in movies. This is where we get things like the virgin whore binary, the hero versus the trickster, and these all come from the collective unconscious. And I think the even further articulation of that was by a theorist, and I believe we've talked about him on the podcast before, but a fella named Joseph Campbell and his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. So the direct quote, which I think kind of perfectly sums up this whole theory, is a hero ventures forth from the world of the common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to restore boons on his fellow man. Now, I think Ramey and Co. might have read that as boomsticks, but... This is my boomstick! This theory gets applied to a lot of things. I think most famously it's applied to Star Wars. You know, you see that Luke Skywalker's arc and all the stuff he has to do, and then when you start off in A New Hope and everything, you know, takes off, and then you wind up with Return of the Jedi, and it's like a perfect blueprint of the Campbellian theory. So there are three main parts to a hero's journey as Campbell theorizes. So there is the departure, which is leaving comforts and the familiar. Uh, There's the initiation, which is basically just a series of tests. And then finally, there is the return, when the hero gives his knowledge to others. Now, I'm kind of delving into using the pronoun of his or him, Because as Campbell's theory states, the hero is almost always a man, because sure. And also we are referring to Ash. Now, the thing that's important to keep in mind is that the passing of the tests is really paramount to the hero's struggle. And each time he struggles and surpasses an expectation, he gains new knowledge, new skill, and new internal power. It becomes a huge 
force in his development as a character, as a being, and, you know, applying that to the kind of common day every man, the notion that every time you struggle or you fall down, you pick yourself up and you become better for it. Now, another archetypal character that I feel like we can't get away from when we talk about the Evil Dead films is the character of the trickster. And what strikes me, being a horror fan and putting Evil Dead in context against the wider world of horror, is what's unique about the Kandarian demons is they are so playful. They are very silly. And insofar as they want to swallow your soul... I'll swallow your soul! I'll swallow your soul! I'll swallow your soul! <laughs> Swallow this. They also just kind of want to fuck with you. They want to possess your friends and kind of oscillate back and forth between your possessed girlfriend and your normal girlfriend saying, Oh, Ash, please don't hurt me. And they kind of really get off on tormenting you. And the trickster in mythology, it's a deity that breaks the rules of nature using either cunning or foolishness. And I feel like in the Evil Dead universe, we really see both. The trickster often exhibits gender and form variability, and it's not uncommon for a trickster character to engage in homosexual practices. He's a boundary crosser, and that's something that we see a lot in the remake. And the trickster really embodies contradiction, which I really see a lot in The Evil Dead in terms of the pretty doll-faced girl. And like the moments when it goes from total crazy humor where the demons are possessing these stuffed animals on the wall to when the entity in the basement returns to the form of Annie's mother and starts singing that lullaby and you have that real chilling chilling moment hush little baby don't say a word it's gonna buy you a mockingbird that mockingbird don't sing Mama's gonna buy you a diamond ring. That diamond ring turns brass. Mama's gonna buy you a looking glass. One of my favorite things about Annie's mother, I think her name is Henrietta, is when she's fighting Ash in the basement, it's a full-on street fight. I love the way they fight in these movies. Like, they're throwing punches, just like a street fight. That doesn't happen a whole lot in horror. Fighting monsters is a good old-fashioned uppercut. We need more fisticuffs. I agree. Anyway, traditionally, the role of the trickster was to provide catharsis, you know, saying and doing things that society deems unacceptable to express. And it makes us more comfortable with order because the disorder represented by the trickster is just so fucked up. Now, also, the trickster often presents a scenario that allows the hero to ascend. And if you think about the Evil Dead universe, Ash is an, a smart employee. He's about as blue collar as they come, you know? He's just a simple guy with simple needs, just wants to take his girlfriend to a cabin and maybe get lucky. And at the end of it, he emerges with a chainsaw for a hand. And travels through time and becomes worshipped by a group of people who now know that he can kill these Kandarian demons. Which is a bit of a continuity blip. A lot of people point out that at the end of Evil Dead 2, he kills a demon with his boomstick and everybody worships him. But at the beginning of Army of Darkness, they're immediately suspicious and they kind of treat him as a threat. But honestly, Sam Raimi could give a fuck about continuity. I mean, look at the Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. He doesn't care. And if you picked up perfectly from where Evil Dead 2 leaves off, you wouldn't get that sweet, sweet well fight. 
That's one of my favorites. Once again, a sweet street fight. <laughs> in a well. In a watery well with an old hag. Yo, she bitch. Let's go. One of the most important things that we have to talk about, which we've already kind of touched on with these two films, is the notion of tragedy versus comedy. Now, while The Evil Dead may not be, you know, a quote-unquote tragic film, it certainly has a lot more dramatic elements in it and plays much more like a straight horror film than Evil Dead 2, which is totally bonkers, off-the-wall, hilariously insane. Now, it's not to say, and I, I think these two movies prove it, it's not to say that one genre is better than the other. It's actually kind of a beautiful thing that we've got this really similar story told by a lot of the same people just bending the genre just a little bit. So we actually have a really cool side-by-side -side comparison when we start examining them. Now, one of my favorite quotes about tragedy comes from the writer C.S. Lewis. And I unfortunately don't have it in front of me, but the gist of it is that Tragedy is something we engage with and that we can perform in. Comedy is something we watch. And I, I always thought that was really interesting because when you are in you know, peril or you are in tragedy, whether that's I just got dumped or you know, there is a team of Kandarian demons after me, there is a real emotional, visceral response to it. And it really elevates the personal problem into something of the gods. So that's why when you look at something like Greek and Roman theater, tragedy was leveled as a much higher form of art because this was seen as the art that the gods suffered with. And I have to say, Evil Dead 2 is one of the only pure horror comedy crossovers that I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time I kind of like to keep them separate because one takes away from the other. But Sam Raimi was obviously a huge Three Stooges fan. Everything is very slapstick, yeah. which is kind of a very crude form of comedy. And it also mixes in with satire a little bit because it plays on such classic horror tropes. That's right. And I think what's interesting about comedy, which has beyond earned its place in contemporary culture, is that comedy is very much about release. It has that power to take the air out of the room or take the air out of a really tense situation and to understand the world in a very different way, in a way that is comforting and a way that is destabilizing at some points. Just as Andrea was talking about with the trickster, a lot of tricksters feature heavily in comedy. So the notion of having demons, these horrific creatures, also be very funny entities in and of themselves, as well as the way that Raimi portrays them, there is this notion that their world is not just all evil there is something human about them there is something that we understand and that we can recognize within this ancient demonic force that seems very familiar and very present to us
the Evil Dead films are possession films, and it's kind of easy to forget about that because, you know, the Kandarian demons are so unique yeah. and they're so fantastic with their makeup and special effects that they kind of seem like creatures. But they are demons that possess human beings. And I don't think of gender politics very strongly when I think of the first two Evil Dead films. I mean, we talked about the tree rape scene, and I think gender politics feature very strongly in the 2013 remake. But in the original films, I feel like we can't get past mentioning that classically women are considered more vulnerable to possession because they're closer to nature, they're more emphatic, and it is true that in these films, the women tend to get possessed more so than the men, or at least first. But Evil Dead is also unique in that our main protagonist gets possessed, and that Ash in Evil Dead 2 is possessed for a short time until the sun comes up. And I think it's also important to note, and one of the ways that Evil Dead is brought up a lot in academic theory, and again, it's only a few instances we've been able to find, is that Ash is one of the few kind of final girls that's actually a dude. And Carol Clover talks about this in, again, her amazing book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, that even though Ash is a man, he still kind of has a girl's name. And by kind of, he totally does, because his name's Ashley. Yeah. And the fact that he is, especially in that first film, as Andrea had just said before, he's a very feminized version of a man. He's, you know, the kind of quiet, goofy guy who gives his girlfriend, you know, a necklace, and it matters to him that she likes it. Yeah, he's probably in the drama club, you know, your buddy. Now, Bruce Campbell is actually going to be a guest at the Rue Morgue Festival of Fear in Vancouver, which is happening soonish. And I'm kind of hoping that he comes to Toronto in August. Did I ever tell you I met him, but like at a book signing? No. Yeah. My friends really wanted to go. I think it's when he had Chins Could Kill. And we all went. This is when we were still all in high school. And there was this like big lineup. But you could just tell like from, you know, the way he took a bit of time with each person that came out and like chatted with them. He like got it and he like cared and, you know, he understood the exchange. But, you know, he understood that it seemed to make people like happy and they got a kick out of meeting him. And in the special features of the movies, too, in every interview, everyone will say that Bruce was pulling the production forward. He did all of his stunts himself. He was in it to make a good film and not to make a quick buck, which, from what I understand, he really didn't from those films. Nobody did. And insofar as Sam Raimi went on to direct stuff like Spider-Man, Bruce Campbell kind of stayed in the realm of cult films and camp and just dominated it as legitimately a cult hero. Yeah, I'd say if, like, our freaky horror community was, like, a high school, he'd be, like, the quarterback. Hail to the king, baby. I do think it's interesting, because we were just talking about the monetary aspects of these two films, is that, again, Andrew and I both love these films, I would say almost equally. And I think what's interesting is the many different ways you see the effect of budget on this same story. So in Evil Dead 2, it just looks a bit slicker, the effects are a bit better, and... Some of the actors are a bit better. In fact, one of the actors is quite noticeably physically different. And that would be the character of Ash's girlfriend. They're changed with no mention. Both named Linda. The actress in the first film is an attractive woman, but she's wearing kind of a bulky sweater and high-waisted pants and has an interesting hairdo. While Linda, number two, also has an interesting hairdo, but a tighter body, shall we say, and likes to do ballet in her skivvies, and it's hot-er. 
They definitely pumped up Linda's sex appeal for the second film. Hello, lover. So another thing that's interesting about this film series is it's quite obvious that the focus of these films was to make a scary story and use practical effects, have really interesting, innovative ways to make a haunted house, to make it move, to make it talk, to make it live, to make these Kandarian demons very interesting. And it doesn't seem like a whole lot of thought is put into story or emotional development, but it still happens, which I think sets it apart in stark contrast to the remake where there's all this backstory with the aim of giving us emotional attachment and instead it just removed me completely. I totally agree. There is something very interesting about the original films because I can't imagine before, you know, March last year, I couldn't imagine an Evil Dead film without Bruce Campbell. It's a very weird notion to me, and it still kind of is, even though I would say I'm probably a bigger fan of the remake than Andrea is. And I think what they had to do in that film is they had to take all the basics and then reroute all the characters because they didn't have a Bruce Campbell. They didn't have that charming, sarcastic bastard who you totally want on your team if the gloves ever come off. So they had to really, you know, 180 the whole shebang and go in a totally new direction with it. And I think they didn't have the infrastructure of the film to support that. So that I, I think Andrea is absolutely right. The first half hour, 40 minutes of that film is kind of difficult to watch, especially from a writing standpoint. But once it gets into it and you see the way that Mia's journey plays out, I think there's a really satisfying conclusion there. So I I think Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, and then Army of Darkness, you've got this amazing world created by Sam Raimi featuring Bruce Campbell, who he knows very well, and they are able to play on all of his personality aspects. Now, the first films, Bruce Campbell brings so much heart into the role. And the fact that the 2013 remake was such a high-budget production, you just simply can't treat actors the way they treated Bruce Campbell in the original movies. I mean, if you think of Evil Dead 2, there was a clip in the special features where they showed, you know, Bruce Campbell in his evil ash makeup and paraphernalia face down in a brown, muddy puddle, and they counted to 30 And then he had to get up and look up with these horrible contacts that covered his entire sclera. It was ridiculous. They gave him a lot of punishment throughout those first two films, and I think it really shows. I did find it interesting that the Necronomicon in the remake seemed to be very gendered. It seemed to be warning of and teaching how to dispose of a female demon. There's a lot of illustrations and there's a lot of kind of witchcraft imagery where you're burning the witch and here's an image of the witch getting raped by a tree and here's an image of the witch pouring boiling water over her head and things that happened in the film were in the Necronomicon and they were very female-centric, which I thought was pretty interesting. So I think the real constant through all these films would have to be then the Necronomicon. Mm -hmm. It is the impetus. It is the thing that goes bump in the night, literally in, you know, the films, because it flies open that door and makes people engage with it. Tatra amistrobin hazarta Tantir mano manzizon hazan sobar Samanda robza Shut it off. 
Shut it off. Kanda. Shut it off! Oh We've talked about this theory before, but the return of the repressed, which features very heavily in a writer who, again, we've talked about before, Robin Wood, in his theories surrounding horror. You have these kind of college kids going out to this remote cabin in, you know, rural America, which, again, in 1981, this was an emerging trend. This was not a fully established thing. Now, what we have is these kids going, they're just going to hang out for a weekend, it's going to be fun, and then they play with something they shouldn't. That's right. So it's very much a cautionary tale about, you know, messing around where you shouldn't and opening doors that should stay closed. And I think it even builds so clearly into the structure of one of my more favorite recent contemporary horror films, which is The Cabin in the Woods. Like the whole premise of that movie is the premise of Evil Dead and then Drew Goddard and Joss Whedon blow the doors off of it and reimagine it in a really exciting new way. But without that foundation of the Evil Dead cabin and things lurking in a cellar that we should not know about. If we have any sense or any control, those in Evil Dead, they would have never probably gone into the cellar. It is that evil that has been hidden away, locked away, and now with the opportunity to kind of rise again, it's, you know, pulling out all the stops to get us to notice it. I'm really glad you brought up Cabin in the Woods because I think that came out not long before the Evil Dead remake and it really raised the bar for contemporary horror and I've probably said it in the podcast before but I felt like you know after this came out I was like this is it you know step it up guys because this is creativity in motion and then the Evil Dead remake comes out after and it's almost like man Cabin in the Woods would have been a better Evil Dead franchise movie than this one. Everybody ready? show up on the GPS is unworthy of global positioning. That's the whole point. Get off the grid, right? Hello? I'm thinking this thing doesn't take credit cards. Time says closed. We're looking for, uh, what's it called? Tillerman Road. Not to get you there. Getting back. That's your concern. <laughs> This is awesome. Whoa, no way. The lambs have passed through the gate. They are come to the killing floor. I seriously believe something weird is going on. What is that thing? We have to stay together. This isn't right. We should split up. Yeah, good idea. Really? We gotta get out of here. Somebody sent those things here to get us. You're missing the point. They want to see us punished. 
And I think, again, to Cabin in the Woods' credit, they also successfully mirror the tone of Evil Dead 2, where you have moments of, like, real gore and some really horrific stuff happening, but these really funny moments that I think are grounded by really great performances. And it's, oh, oh, it's so good. And also very direct reference to archetypes. Mm -hmm. I think we could do a whole episode on Cabin in the Woods. I think we should. So a little factoid I want to share. I thought the most interesting little discovery that I got from all the commentary that I watched was the magnifying glass. Now, I don't know about you, Alex, but when you're watching the films and he gives her a magnifying glass amulet, like, this is meaningful. This is going to mean something. Magnifying glass. Is he going to help her see something? Is she going to use it later? And it kind of seems unfulfilled, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's not the best necklace. I don't know how I feel if I got that from my boyfriend. Oh, Ash, beautiful. I really love it. I'll never take it off. I actually found out that in the original script, the magnifying glass was used to catch the sunlight to burn the Necronomicon. And they decided to throw it in the fireplace at the last minute. Yeah, because he still uses it to catch it. That's right. He uses it to drag it over, but I guess they made it still nighttime, so they had to burn the Necronomicon elsewise. So, fun fact, listeners. Now, it's almost hilarious to think that Sam Raimi was charged with obscenity after the first film. It's crazy to think that with today's standards, there was just too much blood. And for that reason, in the second film, they used bodily fluids and liquids of every color of the rainbow and not just red it was like a maxi pad commercial when i want to know if a pad works for me it really helps to see those blue liquid demos so in conclusion we hope that you're with us on this notion that evil dead both of them all of them however you want to categorize it they are cornerstones of american horror and indeed horror internationally because the american film industry is such a still a huge influencer without evil dead we wouldn't have these whole series of low budget indie horror filmmakers that are really able to get on the map and they've seen what you can do with no budget no crew, and with careful consideration, and just being really fucking talented. So there is something to be said for this, and I think the fact is that Raimi, consciously or unconsciously, tapped into these themes of the hero's journey and the journey you go through. And again, it's a very simple thing. Like, the theories we talked about are not big, they're not complicated, you know, we're not exploding like this new idea for you. They're all present. They're all around us. But I think when an artist or a director or anyone like that is successful into tapping into part of the human unconscious, it creates waves. And that is exactly what Evil Dead has done. And Evil Dead continues to resonate with audiences. There have been talks of a sequel to Army of Darkness in the works, which I'm not sure if I'm excited about. We'll see. But I am a huge fan of Evil Dead, the musical. And if you recognized our opening number of the episode today, that's from the musical. And it really harkens back to the fact that Evil Dead is so simple, so campy, and cheesy that it translated so well onto the stage. I caught it several years ago in Ottawa, and I caught it just last summer again in Toronto. And it's a wonderful, wonderful production. If it's playing anywhere near you, definitely go check it out. It's hilarious. I sat in the splatter zone with my boyfriend, which was in the front row, and they had jets 
spraying blood from in front. They had it coming off the stage and also from sprinklers above. So I got the full 360 soaking treatment. Like I got home and I had to get undressed under the shower. I was just drenched like Carrie at the prom. So that's it for another episode of the Faculty of Horror. And before we let you go, we do have one big announcement. Andrea, you going to let me do it? I am so excited to announce that the Faculty of Horror now has our very own website. Thanks to that article on the AV Club, we simply blew our bandwidth on Potomatic and had to move on to bigger and better things. More storage, more bandwidth, a beautiful website for you to engage with. We're going to have blog posts. Again, so many ways for you to interact with us. We've got a contact form on the new website. There's always email, and it's really easy to find us on Twitter and Facebook through our website. So do go check out facultyofhorror.com. We're so excited about it. Now, at the time of this recording, I am struggling with Apple. I have been exchanging nasty emails with their support, trying to change our feed on iTunes. You would think it would be a simple thing to update our feed and have it redirect, but it involves some of the most technically complex jargon that I have ever seen in my history of producing this podcast and in uploading episodes. It's ridiculous. So... Hopefully by the time this airs, we'll have figured it all out. But in case we haven't, do check your subscription to iTunes. Double check it. Make sure you're getting new episodes. And sorry about that, but Steve Jobs, can I say? So that's it for another episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, all our new listeners. Thank you even more to all our old listeners. And just like that, office hours are closed. Come